0: So we'll begin in Titus chapter 2 once again. Let's join together at the throne of grace and ask God's blessing on our time together. Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for the grace that you pour out on us and that grace comes to us courtesy of the sacrifice of your Son our Savior but it comes to us through the channel of your word. Without your word we would know nothing of you nothing of what you have done on our behalf. So, Father, for these precious souls that have gathered together here this morning, I just pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will minister to our needs, that he will make your word come alive, that he will drive it deep in our souls, each according to our need. Give comfort where comfort is needed and rebuke and correction if necessary obviously always instruction and enlightenment and illumination not just concerning your word which reveals to us your will but also concerning your plan for each and every one of us thank you for blessing us and gracing us with this day with this opportunity to gather together and study your word let us take advantage of everything that you give us to the full We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as I mentioned at the beginning, the book of Titus has three gospel summaries, three different emphases as revealed in the chapter. The gospel summary, as we saw in chapter 1, is verses 1 through 4, and it relates to authority relates to those who are in positions of leadership and those who have the responsibility of shepherding the sheep, the leadership of the church. By the way, I mentioned, I think in our Arkansas conference that when the Bible talks about elders, it can talk about elders in different ways. Uh, Elder obviously is a position within the local church. Uh, We know that In the Old Testament Moses had 70 elders. Uh, These elders were not the same as a leader of a local church. These were the leaders of clans or the leaders of a village Uh, and it's very much this way today that when you go into uh, third world countries uh, you go into a village and they'll have elders. Those elders are not In some cases, they may be, but they're not always elected, they're simply recognized. And I think in the early church, this was probably the case too. It was not so much that they were elected, but they were recognized as an elder. And when you find the elders in these villages, they're men who have basically earned and gained respect. They have lives that, according to whatever their culture is, are exemplary. Uh, They're men that are considered to have wisdom. It was very much this way among the American Indian tribes. Uh, The chief was a man who was recognized as being the wisest. uh, The one who was recognized as having the leadership. Uh, And if it came to a point where the chief was not leading, uh, in a way that benefited the people, he was just no longer considered the chief. Someone else who had better ideas, better leadership, and better skills guiding the, uh, the tribe would be looked at. And that really is the same system that goes all the way back to the clans uh, in Scotland. You are not the leader of a clan unless you could lead your leadership skills, your wisdom, your character, your judgment, everything was on the line every day. So uh, the point that I made, I believe, was that each one of us may be an elder to someone else at a given point of time. Someone will look at us as being wise enough to answer questions, uh, shrewd enough to give judgments, stable enough. To provide some guidance and direction, or even just in the practical sense. If I'm driving a car, I may be the pastor of the church, but if a mechanic is riding with me and the car breaks down, he becomes the elder. Mm -hmm. He knows what's going on. I don't tell him how to fix my car on the side of the road, he's the guy that knows what's wrong with my car. Kelly's worked on some of my vehicles. He knows. It's it's the person who has the skill and the capabilities to meet the need at the moment. So think about that sometimes, just even in your interaction with people or even within your local church. There may be people in your local church that are elders that are not recognized as having any office, and yet they're the person that you would go to. This is the person that I would want to uh, give me counsel in any given situation. That's something really all of us should be striving to do because we're all here for each other. We're not here for ourselves. We're not here just so I can get to Super Grace. Nan and I went to uh, the airport in Phoenix to fly to Little Rock, and we were at Gate Eight. I told her I've been wanting to get to Gate Eight, all night. <laughs> and that's going to be go totally over the head of most people that listen to this tape. I am at the eighth gate. Man, I have reached super grace. We all should be striving to be that kind of person. The gospel summary that we find in chapter two is one of my favorites in the entire Bible. As a matter of fact, when I was going through preaching school, if you want to call it that, when I was in Bible school and I had a Pastors class I forget what they called it pastoral Ministry preparation or something. I don't know what it was We had to select a text and preach on the text to the whole school body They would bring us into the chapel and here is Brother so-and-so who is going to make a great preacher, and here is so-and-so who will be great evangelist, and here's so-and-so. And and, and then when I came along, they just said, here's (laughs) Jane. I don't think they held out much hope for me. This was my text. This was the text that impressed me, and it was the one that I chose to teach on. And amazingly, what I taught on at that time has uh, really kind of stayed with me and guided me uh, every time I look at this passage. So... Here we are, I'm going to read it from my large print so that I don't have to stumble over my markings in my Bible. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting that earlier in chapter 1, he used the phrase, God our Savior. Here he uses God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then when he gets up into chapter 3 and verse 6, it'll be Jesus Christ our Savior. So God uses the term Savior interchangeably for the Godhead, for the Father, or for the Lord Jesus Christ, because obviously all of them are involved in our salvation. Let's see if we can just pick this little Gospel summary apart, because I mentioned at the beginning of our time together, in the Gospel, rightly understood, are all of the elements of theology. The whole realm of theology is found in the Gospel. Reminds me of a story when I went to Kazakhstan for the first time. I was speaking at the Kazakhstan Evangelical Seminary. And I thought, I prayed, studied, prepared. And I thought, I'm just going to go with the mindset that Paul had when he went to Corinth. Remember how he wrote to the Corinthians and he said, When I came to you, I determined to know nothing among you, except Christ crucified so here I come to this seminary and they had visiting pastors professors people from seminaries and Bible college that was pretty much how the school ran was by pastors and professors that could come in and give them a week or two of their time and instruct the students so they obviously had hurt a lot of people So, I come in and I'm a nobody, and they always ask, How do you prefer to be referred to? And I always say, My name's fine. You know, there are people that say, Well, I would like to be referred to as Professor, or I would like to be referred to as the Right Reverend, or whatever. Well, for me, my name's fine. You know, just so after having all these guys parading through, that here is Dr. so and so, you know. And some of the guys always want them to read all of the letters that come after their name. These guys don't even know what the letters mean. They just know that's pretty impressive. (laughs) I stood up and I said, and of course I've got a translator translating for me. And I said, I decided to come to you as Paul came to the Corinthians. I have determined to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. And you should have seen the disappointment in those students. Some of them put their forehead in their palm. Some of them just looked down like they were embarrassed. Some of them kind of looked up at the ceiling, like, what do we got here? And so I had a whiteboard, which I always love. I wish I had one here. And on the whiteboard, I drew a cross. How about this? There is the cross. Did you know where that design came from, by the way? In early America, that design came so that it would be a symbol of the cross of jesus christ over the house as a reminder to people that we are under the blood of jesus christ that's where that door design came from goes all the way back into the 1700s so there's the cross i said here's the cross i said there is your whole theology and then i began breaking down the 10 areas of systematic theology. Theology proper, the study of God. Christology, study of Christ. Pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. Bibliology, the study of Scripture. Homardiology, the study of sin and how sin entered into the world and I get into eschatology, how is the world going to end? And I go through all of these things and I said, all of them come from this right here. Well, now they're like burning up their pages with their pens as they're writing all this stuff down because they never knew how much related to the cross. So what I did was I kept referring back to what Christ accomplished at the cross and then I would ask them the question, I think I was there for two weeks, Today we're going to study theology proper. What is the nature of God? We find out right here. The cross tells us everything about God. Then I will go through the essence of God. God is sovereign, righteous, just. Love, eternal life, omniscient, omnipresent. Immutable. Veracity. I missed an O. Omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. Got them all. And I said, do you guys know about all this? No, we've never heard about this. I said, this is theology proper. You see it all right here. How do we know that God is omniscient? Well, because he promised the gospel before the world began. Titus tells us, someone was asking me about this. It's not only in Titus, it's also in 2 Timothy 1.9. Twice God tells us the gospel was promised before time began. It's got to be important. It tells us that he was omniscient and so i just i spent two weeks taking each of the areas of systematic theology and relating them to the cross and just coming back here and saying you know like if you stop and think about it for a minute it's quite an interesting exercise what does the cross tell us about eschatology well in the first place what is eschatology eschatology comes from eschatos eschatos means last eschatology is the study of last things so what does the cross tell us about last things there is a judgment coming god is going to judge sin you can take them to revelation chapter 20 and you can get into the great white throne judgment or revelation 19 and the return of jesus christ to this world to judge there's going to be a judgment hebrews Chapter 7, it is appointed unto men once to die. What comes next? The judgment. Well, how do we know how we'll fare in the judgment? Where do you stand in relation to the cross? In Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. So I found it very fascinating. I know that was a diversion. But this passage to me is an absolutely fascinating passage. The grace of God. Look at the cross and ask yourself, how many things can I write down that are an expression of the grace of God? The world, creation, my birth, without all the ancestors I had all the way back to Adam, I would not have come. Do you know i have this written down you obviously have two parents you have four sets of grandparents you can extrapolate that out back to i think four generations and you have four thousand and some direct ancestors do you realize that if even one of them had died early you would not be here god preserved that person and the next person and the next person and the next person all the way down. I mean, I wasn't even born until my dad was 40. What if he died at 39? God had a plan to bring us into this world at the proper time and in the proper place and in the proper circumstances. And we all come from dysfunctional families in one way or another, to a greater or lesser degree. When you stop and think about it, did you ever stop and think that all of the circumstances of your family and where you were born and how you grew up and the bad things that were a part of growing up and the faults and flaws in your parents and so on and so forth, even in your grandparents? You know, Nan dotes on our grandkids. I don't remember, I only remember one of my grandmothers ever speaking to me once. I don't remember ever a pat on the head, a pat on the back, a kind word. It was like kids were to be seen and and not heard and don't get in my way. Different now. But all of that put together is a part of the fabric of life that God has put us in to make us what we are. And all of it was important. And none of it was accidental. And we can hate some of it and we can rebel. Some of my brothers and sisters have really bad attitudes about some of the things the way we were raised. You know what I always say? I needed it. I needed every bit of it. I needed it as harsh. I needed it as painful. I needed it as hurtful. I needed the rough and tumble of it. I needed it all. You know what? I couldn't do what I do if I hadn't gone through it. So it's important for us to learn to be thankful even for the difficult circumstances in life because if we allow God to work in our life, he'll take those and use them. I mean, Faso's dad was a drug runner, a black magic guy, uh, who knows what else, you know? And look how he turned out. <laughs> Why are you all laughing? <laughs> the grace of God the grace of God brings salvation salvation is one thing the grace of God is all inclusive the grace of God that brings salvation notice has appeared to all men I think that's very important the Bible tells us that God loves all men The scripture teaches us that Christ died for all men. Those who have a preconceived theological position that come into this and read all men, meaning the elect. It's it's a uh, desecration of scripture. It's worse than a desecration of scripture. It's a diminishing of almighty God. Almighty God is not big enough to love everyone. Almighty God is not big enough to allow people the exercise of free will. Almighty God must be a puppet master and a manipulator who controls everything because if there's anything that he's not making happen, he's going to lose control and who knows. Now they won't say that, but ultimately that is the end conclusion of that theological position. God's love is for everyone He created. Every member of the human race is created in the image of God. And they're created in the image of God and part of that image, by the way, one of these days I'm going to do a doctrine on the sovereignty of man. Everybody gets wrapped up about the sovereignty of God. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever and ever and ever. But don't forget... That when he placed Adam on this earth, he gave him dominion over the earth. And that dominion demands free will, and that dominion is a part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Why does God create all men in his image? Because God had an ultimate goal and an ultimate purpose for each and every one to take advantage of the redemption in Christ. And to become what they could become as a new creature in Christ. But they have the opportunity to receive or reject. I could spend a lot of time on that, but we'll move on. Grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us. Now the us as in opposition to all men refers to those of us who have believed. All men have the opportunity to respond. We've responded. So what does it do? It teaches us something. The gospel is not just telling us how to escape the hells of flame. Or the flames of hell. I got my, (laughs) what do you call it? Dyslexic. It teaches us something. The gospel alone teaches us something. What does it teach us? It teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Why? Because what did we do the day we trusted Jesus Christ? We rejected ungodliness. We reject that which is anti-God and opposed to God. We turn from that. This is what repentance is. We turn from all that the world has to offer. We turn from all that we seek and desire within our own flesh. And we turn to something totally alien to us. Something totally apart from this unredeemed, unsaved world. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ where we saw the Son of God... Willing to sacrifice himself and pay the penalty for all our sins. And we turn from the one and we turn to the other. That is really the essence of repentance. When we deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, the result is we live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. There has to be a rejection of one and an acceptance of the other. Why in the world would anybody deny their own desires? Why would anyone deny what the world has to offer? It's unnatural. The natural thing is the flesh and the world are perfect matches. All of our desires are offered by all that is in the world. And the most natural thing in the world for any fallen human being is to seek to satisfy the desire of the flesh in the things the world offers. I'm I'm, I'm building this up for a reason because I want you to catch something Paul's pointing out here. Why would an unbeliever with a sinful nature, full of lustful, self-centered desires, with all of the things that the world offers, why in the world would they deny that and turn away from it? Because the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, broke through the hardness of their heart to show them that this is not the answer. The answer is here in the person of Christ. Now, I'm going to make a point from this, and I hope you get it. For some reason, the Spirit has been putting this burden on me lately, and it goes back to what I said earlier. I struggled with this as a young believer and was constantly defeated, and you will stay defeated as long as you think you can fight your sin nature. You are going to be a loser. As long as you think you can overcome the world, and make yourself a better person, you are going to be a loser. You haven't got the strength. You haven't got the wisdom. You haven't got the skill to defeat what's out there. It's greater than you, smarter than you, stronger than you, more relentless than you, and you can't whip it. And it's not only what's out there, it's everything that's in here. Anybody ever listen to Dire Straits? A bunch of blank looks like who <laughs> you ever hear the song the man is too strong If you haven't heard it you haven't heard one of the best ones it's a song about the struggle against the sin nature the man is too strong I can't whip him he's too strong for me every time I try to combat him I'm going to lose So, what do we do? We turn to Christ. They don't quite get to that point in the song, but still very interesting. So, coming back to our summary of the gospel, which is the essence of all of theology denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Why in the world would any Christian? All right, we've already realized the world is going to lead us to hell. The only offer of deliverance is in the person of Christ. So, in that tiny baby infant step, we took a step away from rejecting, denying all this, and reaching out to lay hold of this by simple childlike faith. We did it once, and it changed our entire eternal destiny. Now, here is the application What if we did it every day? It's the same decision. How many of us who have a new creation inside of us, the new man, who have the Holy Spirit living within us as the enabling and empowering force of God himself, the omnipotence of God dwelling within us, and how many of us are still running around trying to get satisfied out there in the world? You know what we've done? We've gone into reversion. What is reversion? It's a turning back. The picture comes from the Exodus generation. What did they do? They came out of Egypt. They were slaves. They were brutally beaten and abused. They were starving. They were overworked. Their children were being slaughtered by the Pharaoh. And finally, along comes Moses to lead them out. They put the blood of the lamb on the door of their house. The Passover takes place, and they come out in liberation. And then what do they do? We want to go back to Egypt. We miss the leeks and the garlics. I mean, of all the things that you could miss, why leeks and garlic? (laughs) Did they not have any better food in Egypt? I mean, I love garlic, but it's not the thing if I said, what would I crave more than anything else? I know, garlic. (laughs) You know, garlic on steak? Yeah. Yeah. And they want to go back. And they've seen the plagues that God sent on Egypt. They've seen the parting of the Red Sea. They've seen the provision of manna. They've seen the quails that flew into the camp. I love to quail hunt. I wouldn't even enjoy this. Swing a stick up in the air, knock three or four out of the air, and take them and cook them. No fun. Of course, they didn't have 12-gauge shotguns. Right? All the provisions that were made for them and they're still wanting to go back to Egypt. Denying and taking. That's what every day is all about. But you know what? When we reach out back to Egypt to take, we have just denied. We've denied Christ. We've denied His rightful place in our life. We have denied His power. We have denied His provision we have denied His illumination, we've turned our back on everything that, what does Paul call it? He calls it the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. We just turned our back on it. This is all going somewhere, so hang with me teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly love, there must be, in order to receive, you must reject. That is the law of life. In order to receive, you must reject. There is always in every soul, every single day, a set of scales, a set of balances. And we are going to choose which one is going to get the heavy weight we're going to put the balance is here it's perfectly balanced and we are going to take our volition our choice our decision our will and we're going to lay it on one or the other and that is going to be the one that wins the day rejecting or receiving if we learn to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and live soberly righteously and godly in the present age, what we have done is we have simply rejected that which cannot fulfill its promise for that which can Satan can't fulfill his promises. The flesh cannot fulfill its promises. Self-centeredness can never fulfill its promise. God always fulfills his promise. So when he talks about living soberly Righteously and godly in this present age, a fallen world that is anti-God, anti-truth, anti-Christ. We're going to be living soberly, soundly, righteously, godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The blessed hope. You know, the Bible uses hope three different ways. Think about these. It talks about a living hope. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. God has begotten us again to a living hope. A hope that's alive. A hope that has life. A hope that gives life. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Then in 1 John 3.3, John talks about a purifying hope. It's not only a hope that is alive and continues alive, but it's a hope that has a purifying effect. It is a purifying hope. It refines, it purifies everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. So talking about denying and receiving or rejecting and receiving, if we have that hope in us which means we have to claim it and cling to it, it's going to have an effect in our life. It is going to purify our life. There's going to be a constant bathing taking place in our life. A constant purification or what we call sanctification you are not going to be the same today that you were six months ago can i ask you a question can you look back six months in your life and say i can see major changes god has made in my life if you honestly can't you've got a problem there's a problem because six months is more than enough time for god to have accomplished something in your life that is better than what it was back then And sometimes we look and we look with amazement, I can't believe, six months ago to today, unbelievable. But there ought always to be something is different, something's changed, an attitude, an action, a motivation, whatever it may be. Spent a lot of time on that, but we'll move on. When we keep on looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Again, God our Savior is used up there in verse 10. And we saw it in chapter 1 as well. When we keep our eyes fixed on Him, everything finds its rightful place. You ever notice this is very true of a horse? (coughs) You're riding a horse. How do you get the horse to go left? You you go. Right? Come on, horse. Come on. Left turn. Left turn. Left turn. (laughs) In neck crane, you turn his head left, and what does he do? Horses do not walk like this. (laughs) And neither do you you and i will always go where we set the eyes of our soul we will always go that way that's the way that we're made when we fix our eyes what does the scripture say fixing our eyes on jesus the author and the finisher of our faith in that passage in hebrews chapter 12 why is it so important that we fix our eyes on jesus the author and the finisher because we have a race to run and we're supposed to run with endurance and what will determine whether or not we endure or not. Very simple, whether our eyes are fixed on Him or not. If our eyes are fixed on Him as the goal and we are weary and I, I can't tell you how many believers that I hear telling me this all the time, I'm so weary. I'm just so tired of life. I'm I'm just, I want out. What? What? You have one more day, one more opportunity to lay up treasure in heaven and you're tired? I understand physical exhaustion, I understand mental exhaustion, but I do not understand people that are, I'm just done with life. Well, guess what? Life's done with you. You're not living, you're existing. Don't let that attitude settle in your soul. What time we got? Oh man, we got to be out of here in 10 minutes. All right, here we go. This is the rapid run through Titus 2 let's take everything we've seen here and let's just apply it over the chapter here we go verse one as for you titus paul writing speak the things that are proper for sound doctrine every time you see that word sound it means healthy healthy i have healthy doctrine therefore that the older men should be sober reverent temperate sound in faith in love in patience Faith, love, and patience. They should be temperate, controlled, reverent. The older women, notice chapter 1 was all about the leadership, chapter 2 is all about the church. Older women should be reverent in behavior. We have all seen older women who are not. It's ugly. That they are reverent in their behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Every woman is called by God to be a teacher. Did you know that? Every woman teacher of children, teacher of little girls, teacher of younger women, teacher of fellow women, and sometimes teachers of their husbands. Yes, ladies, I know. You've been trying to train us for a long time. Don't give up. 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6, says that's exactly the way it's supposed to be. If your husbands are not obedient to the word, bring them into the word. How? Not by the tongue, but by your behavior. You're a teacher. Verse 4, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands and love their children. Learning to love is an educational process. It doesn't come naturally. He's not talking here about feelings. He's talking about learning to love. Love has to do with stability. It has to do with character. It has to do with conduct. It has to do with self-sacrifice. To love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste. In other words, pure. Discreet has the idea of wise decisions. Skillful decisions. Homemakers. Good, obedient to their own husbands that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Why does it always say obedient to their own husband? Because one of the big temptations of the world is for women to be obedient to somebody besides their husband. Mm -hmm. And it can be some caught on TV or some professor in a university or some guy in the church. Submissive to their own husband. As I said to the ladies in the weekend conference, the word own, you ladies will all love it. It is the word idios, and we get the word idiot from it. So be subject to your own idiot husband. Amen. <laughs> Likewise, verse 6. <coughs> Exhort the young men. To be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. People need not just instruction, they need example. You know what? You will never learn the depths of doctrine until you learn it by the example of someone else. And unfortunately, no matter how deep doctrine is being taught, if it is not exhibited in conduct, you'll never learn it. It's just the way we're made. We are made to imitate. What did Paul say? Be imitators of me as I imitate Jesus Christ. That's the way we learn. Showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibly. Sound speech, healthy speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say about you. Exhort the bondservants, first the women, then the men, now the bondservants. To be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. You know, a talking back servant usually is the one that gets beaten. Not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. The word adorn is cosmeo, and it means to make doctrine beautiful. Here's a challenge for all of us today. As we go on our field trip, not going to tell you where I was looking down there when I said it. Do you think we are going to be able to make doctrine beautiful? Because I'll tell you, sometimes we don't. We don't make gospel beautiful to people around us. We should. There should be something they look and say, man, what a great group of people. What a pleasant, enjoyable group of people. Instead of man, what a bunch of grumblers, And I've heard this from waiters and waitresses in many different places. They hate Sunday, they hate working Sunday because the Christians come in, say their prayers, have their meal, and then leave a track for a tip. I can tell you that Brandon got a good tip. It wasn't just good, it was great. I overtip. I above double tip. Well, I'm not going to tip him. He didn't put enough cream in my coffee. Well, he's only got 10,000 other people out there that told him what they want, and he didn't put enough cream in your coffee. And oh, by the way, I would like, could, could, you, could you turn this on one side, but don't turn it on the other side. If you add a little bit of this and then change a little bit of that, would you please do that? You only have 50 other people that are relying on you. And they go away saying, I hope I never serve Christians again. And I've had many waiters and waitresses tell me that. I hate to serve Christians. When we go in and we sit down and pray, we oftentimes will even say, can we pray for you? We're gonna pray. Is there something that you need that we can pray for you? And you know what? All of that means absolutely nothing if we leave them a But when they say those guys were Christians, and you know what? I haven't been tipped like I've been tipped by them, by anybody. I never go in a hotel room, and I'll tell you this, I try to leave a big tip for the lady that's cleaning the room and leave a coin. Those women work their butts off trying to take care of little kids at home, and most of them are single mothers, and they're cleaning up other people's mess, and nobody even thinks about it. They ought to receive something that says, hey, thank you, and sometimes they even write them a note. Enough on that. We ought to make the doctrine of God beautiful. If we're not making it beautiful, we're making it ugly. It's going to be one or the other. We've seen the summary of the gospel. Verse 14 says, he gave himself for us. By the way, that didn't just start at the cross. That was his whole life. Can you imagine the jokes his brothers made about him? Oh, here comes Mr. Holy. Here comes Goody Two Shoes. And what did Jesus do every day of their lives? He loved them. He loved them. He took up for them. He was the older brother. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, not just to save our soul, not just to keep us from the lake of fire, but that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a special people zealous for good works. I don't know if you have picked up on this, but look at how many times good works appears in Titus. It's what the book is all about. But it's all about good works because of the impact of the gospel. The gospel has changed our lives forever. It needs to change our lives incrementally on a moment-by-moment and day-by-day basis. Why is that? Well, it goes back to what he said earlier. The grace of God has appeared to all men. How did it appear? Through someone's life. Unbelievers don't read the Bible. It appeared through someone's life. And I believe in the life of every single person who has ever lived, God brings into their periphery at some moment of time a person that is so different, so unique, so unworldly that they have the opportunity to say, I wonder what made them that way. How come they're like that? His own special people. The idea here is a special possession, zealous for good works. You know, a zealot has one thing thinking. Their mind is riveted on one thing. And the good works here are of course, the production of the fruit of the spirit in our lives. And if we had our eyes fixed on Christ and our minds fixed on one thing, again, put it in the terms I used earlier, Can I adorn the doctrine of God today? How could I make the gospel attractive to someone even if I can't give it to them? If I can't even speak the gospel, can I be someone that the Lord will one day say, you remember that guy that came into your periphery, that lady that came into your periphery, and for reasons that had nothing to do with what was going on, they showed you grace, kindness, love, mercy, patience whatever you remember that person yeah i remember that stuck with me for the rest of my life that was the gospel being made beautiful to you and you turned your back on it because all i have to do is flip the switch in their soul that says i want to know what it is that makes that person that way and god is going to guide them to the truth of the gospel of jesus christ every person that ever came to faith in jesus christ had ten a hundred a thousand witnesses by Their lives before they ever came to Christ. These things speak, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. And I have done it. I just did it in this class. So, it's 1133. We have 27 minutes to make it for the bus. Let's pray and we'll be there. Father, thank you for your grace. Bless the things that we have studied and learned. Let them change our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.